0: It turns out they're both very, very racist toward each other. They have this ongoing rivalry throughout the rest of the movies where they're like blah, blah, elf and blah, blah 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 dwarf and blah blah blah. But at the end they're like, I never thought I'd fight side by side with an elf and Legolas, that's his name. Legolas is like, how about fighting side by side with a friend? And then it's like, no, oh, yeah, no more elf dwarf racism. And see, I, I remember the social justice parts. That's, yes. that's how I work.
1: J.R.R. Tolkien is a well-known social justice warrior. <laughs>
0: He's a social justice bard, you see. Yes.
1: Recorded in our nerd haven studios. This is Pop Medieval, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina Macdonald, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And Now, back to your podcast.
0: What, doc? What, Nina? Well, I don't suppose you've heard the latest in space news. Great
1: did hear. Thanks to Engineer Mike, there was no way to miss the news.
0: Yeah, he's a bit of a space nerd.
1: <laughs> yes, he is. No,
0: I've been hearing all about it for the past couple of weeks.
1: So we've discovered a new star. It's the most distant star we've ever seen. The medieval connection here is they named it Arendelle, which means Dawn Star in Old English and a similar slight spelling difference from the name of Elrond's father in The Lord of the Rings. Dill. and of course, you know, uh, there's a little umlaut over the A, as I recall, in Tolkien's version, because he can't he can't leave a name without a good diacritical mark in it somewhere.
0: Oh, these space nerds and these Tolkien nerds—they just coincide, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: There is a big overlap in those two Venn diagrams there.
0: That is true. I'm going to link to our show notes, but the woman who was interviewed for this article, she has Elvish tattooed on her arm. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I thought, oh, that's that's really clever. I like that. (laughs) So it makes sense. She's like right smack in the middle of the space nerd and the Tolkien nerd Venn diagram. Good for her.
1: Yeah. So... Of course we know about the Hubble telescope and the Webb telescope but these have a long pedigree of instruments for looking at space and understanding space uh, that we see in the Middle Ages all around the world.
0: They really do. Yeah, this is not a, a recent scientific thing in this community, is it?
1: No, I mean obviously this particular star is but you know people have been mm-hmm. looking up at the stars since Oh, prehistoric times, of course. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I think when we think about the stars that we don't understand is just how much more important the stars were in the daily lives of everyone before the invention of the electric light. Even today. True. Yeah. When my children were younger I was very involved with the cub scouts and then the boy scouts with my son and we would go on camping trips together if I would get up in the middle of the night for one reason or another you know and I didn't know what time it was I would look up at the sky and I would just kind of look and see where was orion's belt in the sky I'm not good enough to see like oh it's at this angle therefore it's 2:45 a.m. Mm-hmm. or anything like that but I was able to go oh it's early in the night or in the middle the night or oh dawn will come in the next couple hours that kind of thing i could do just from looking at that and that's me who lives 99 percent plus of his life with the stars totally obscured by the electric lights around there so people have always been fascinated by the stars it's been an important part of How we understand the world around us.
0: So let's talk about some really early medieval inventions for looking at the stars.
1: So let's start with the smallest one, which is the astrolabe. This has a nice literary connection because Geoffrey Chaucer wrote a treatise on the astrolabe. An astrolabe is a little hard to visualize, I think. It's it kind of looks a little bit like a pocket watch or a slide mm-hmm. rule or a protractor or something.
0: What I looked at, it looks like a sky protractor. Like it's handheld and it's got like a little pointy thing
1: on it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can use this. Now, it wasn't invented in the Middle Ages. It's from late antiquity, or actually maybe mm-hmm. earlier antiquity. And it was used a lot by sailors and things. And it would help you tell time and to you could use it to measure the angle of the stars and figure out where you were. And so because of that, if you were doing a, a long trip, you might have several different astrolabes depending on what latitude you were at. So if you're traveling along different latitudes, you might have to have a different astrolabe. Kind of like leaving from one time zone to the next for us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the astrolabe is really one of these things where it's been around for so long just one group after another improved on it so you know so chaucer part of his astrolabe treatise part of it came from persian jewish astronomer named mm-hmm. uh mashallah ibn atari whose name i only remember because it sounds like atari which was an old video game con- one of the first <laughs> popular video game consoles when i was a kid and you know all these different cultures especially around the Mediterranean, found different ways to improve on it. And probably the biggest improvement came in Portugal when they finally started making them out of metal. And the problem with the earlier ones is you can make them out of other things, especially wood, but Mm -hmm. metal doesn't warp or anything like that. And that's when it became really the real kind of scientific instrument, the kind of thing that was seen to be high tech. So I think we talked about in a previous episode about Avalard and Heloise. (laughs) <laughs> and they named their child Astrolabe. <laughs> Astrolabe, right. This is the device that they named it after. So it would be wrong to say it's a Portuguese device for sure. It would be wrong to say that what he's making in Portugal is a Greek device or that it's an Islamic device. Instead, bit by bit there's all these improvements on the astrolabe well we're not that familiar with it but it's super important and that's probably the smallest of these you've seen an astrolabe right?
0: sure have yeah I can see the disadvantages of having it be wooden especially if you are taking it on a boat if you're a sailor mm-hmm. and have all that salt water degrade it over time
1: I mean one of the great advantages of the astrolabe is it's got two sides you, you can sort of flip it and it has information on one side depending on, on how mm-hmm. you turn the thing and flip it the other way another one is that it is portable, but one disadvantage Mm -hmm. is that because you have to sight off of it and it moves around with you, it also can degrade the accuracy, right? So you can think about if you are moving from latitude to latitude, you have to have a different astrolabe. Obviously, if you're not on the place that it was calibrated to, it's always going to be a little bit off from that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Your position is going to change even if the astrolabe isn't going to.
1: But you know, it wasn't just Europe and the Islamic world that really developed devices like this. One of the most interesting ones, I think it's the most interesting looking of all these devices is one that we... Saw in China. I say we saw in China. I didn't see it in China. Uh, uh, (laughs) But I'll put a link in the show notes so people can have a look at this because I've been trying to find ways to describe it and I couldn't figure out how to describe it. Then I looked up other people's descriptions and as I started reading them, I realized it's very hard to understand and it's called an abridged Armilla or sometimes a simplified Armilla. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a very big or very complicated sundial. Even that isn't doing it justice because it's even more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, it is. It looks like something out of a Jules Verne, like a steampunk kind of thing. And it was big enough that you could stand in it. So imagine an astrolabe Mm -hmm. that you're standing in. And of course, one of the disadvantages of that is it's not very portable. But Mm -hmm. one of the great advantages of it is because it's stationary, it's always going to be accurate to wherever it was built as long as you don't move it. And also it has a sighting tube that you can sort of use to sight. And so because of that, the fact that there's a sighting tube that you're not moving around, you have to move your body because the the object itself is staying still. It really can do a lot to... It really does a lot to improve the accuracy of it.
0: Mm -hmm. And would these just sit on the ground? Would they go inside buildings? Because I'm looking at a, a picture and I'm like how, where was this created and where was it moved to? Because this is massive.
1: Okay. So some of them are outside. Yeah. We know that in some cases, uh, elsewhere in the world, they were built inside buildings. Now the abridged armilla is designed to be able to move around. We'll talk about another kind that was more common in the new world, uh, where it wasn't designed to move around. And so because of this, these would normally be outside or in a place that you can cite pretty well. But even mm-hmm. these are, you know, I just said they were Chinese, especially the Tang Dynasty. One of the most important astronomers was a guy named Gautma Siddha in the 8th century. If that name doesn't sound very Chinese and sounds much more Indian to you. It's because it is. I think he lived in <laughs> yeah. Xi'an, I think, is where he went to. But in any case, there is a lot of interplay. Also, just like in the Mediterranean, because the Mediterranean, there's a lot of interplay in those cultures and the science there. There's a lot of interplay between India and China. And so you see very similar things in India, very similar things in China. But even then, you can't really say there's two, that there's the Euro-African version and the Asian version, because as we see during the time of Kublai Khan, we also have the importation of Islamic learning, part of which at this point mm-hmm. has been also laundered through Europe as well, which then comes through India as Islamic learning into China. So if that sounds like word salad to you, it's because when we are looking at these, you know, it's very common for cultures to want to say we invented this thing. And what you can mm-hmm. normally do is say like, well, we invented this version of this thing based on all these other things. So in North Africa, Europe and all all the way through to East Asia. Over the centuries, there's this mass of information that's coming back and forth and an improvement here that then sweeps to the other side. So you get these, basically, the kinds of things you'd imagine being on top of an observatory with this abridged armilla. How would you describe it? I, I find it so hard to describe it. I do hope people go to the, the link in the show notes to see it, but if they can't, how would you describe it?
0: It looks as though someone is doing a backbend mm-hmm. and pointing toward the stars at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And the one I have a a picture to there is very cool and ornate. And they've got like a a decorative dragon on it and all sorts of cool things like that. So, yeah. Also, if they're not so portable, you can do neat things like that. Mm -hmm. But I mentioned that there were also ones that were indoors. And, you know, moving away from the old world to the new world or the old new world, that is. I spent a lot of time researching the Maya, not just in the the kind of the the lowland temples, but up in the highlands more and spending time looking at the Maya mythology, I guess their, their epic mythology. And the Maya were very interested in time and in the stars. It was super important to them. It was important to their religion. It was so important that some very early 20th century scholars actually thought that the Maya worshipped time. Now, the Maya don't worship time, but that wasn't a crackpot idea. That's how important it was Mm -hmm. to their whole worldview.
0: But they just kept extremely accurate calendars, right?
1: They did. Very accurate calendars. And they would lay out their cities according to things in the sky. You know, just like other cultures that were interested in astrology, they would, you know, decide when to plant crops based on these things and when to go to war based on these things. And even because there's a relationship between the mythic heroes and the stars, there's an interplay between them where you can look at some of the Maya stories and the Maya myths and Read them as reflections of things that are going on in the night skies. So the Maya, they had the biggest things, which are, you know, we, we think of these Maya temples, these big step-step mm-hmm. temples. The Aztecs had similar temples, right, where, you know, you can get up to the top of them. You can get above the rainforest canopy if you're down in the lowlands or just above all the sort of normal noise and, and lights down below and you can observe the skies from up there. They would also, they had certain ones which were these kinds of observatories and they would have these zenith sighting tubes So that you would go in and you're kind of looking out and with these, you can see exactly when, what we would say is you could get accuracy down to about a minute.
0: Wow, that close.
1: Yeah, and so much so, they were so interested in these that there's something called the Dresden Codex, which is, you can guess where that is, but it actually comes from the Maya. And we're not sure, 100% sure when it was made, 11th or 12th century, what would be contemporaneous with the Middle Ages. It's got lots of interesting things in it. But one of the things it has in it are these astrological tables. So it has an eclipse table to tell exactly when the eclipses are going to be. It also has a Venus table and a Mars table to show when Venus is going through the sky and where it will be and when when Mars is going through the sky and where it will be. Because we don't tend to think of it this way, but when you're living outside all the time, and you can see the stars in the sky, and they all have a fixed position. But there's certain stars that move around their position in the sky. Mm-hmm. Even in the most ancient times, people noted these. These were like Venus and Mars, the planets like that. They were very interested in their movements and tracked them. And if you track those movements, you can tell time. And so the Maya yes. would use these sighting tubes. So those are really big. They're whole buildings, basically, that act as earthbound observatories.
0: So is there anything like that that we have today? Do we have buildings or do we have cities that are based around that kind of planning?
1: Well, I don't know of any places that are like that, but we do have a particular certain events that do. So obviously Mm -hmm. we govern our daily lives astronomically. We get up when Mm -hmm. the sun comes up, right? We go to sleep when the sun comes down. We celebrate holidays based on where they are in the year and we determine the year based on these things one really fun example of this has to do with the inauguration of a new president in america it's always after the winter solstice oh yeah in america and we call that an inauguration A little linguistics for you here the word inauguration the root of that is augur which is to say to augur for omens it is essentially the omen of things that are to come yeah in the inauguration ceremony
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that's where it comes from.
1: That's where it comes from.
0: So let's get down into some recommendations then. Do you want to go first?
1: Sure. I have got two recommendations. One is a nice little modern article about how to make an astrolabe. And I have to point to uh, Danielle Cebalski from the Medieval Podcast. She wrote an article where she linked indirectly to it. She referenced it and I got to it and was like, ooh, this is the neatest thing ever. So I've been keeping this in my back pocket. Not literally. I don't have an astrolabe in my back pocket. (laughs) But it's how to make an astrolabe. It's a PDF and we'll link to it so you can see it. It's about, Mm -hmm. I think it's 11 or 12 pages long you can make your own astrolabe out of paper i wouldn't make it a paper maybe cardboard or you know if you really are good at carpentry or heck for all i know you can do some metal work and you make your own metal uh, astrolabe one note is i think it's based around the gregorian calendar that one rather mm-hmm. than the julian calendar it's maybe a little more useful if you want to know when russian orthodox easter comes but le- <laughs> <laughs> but less so if you want to know where you're When the 4th of July is in America. Fair enough. The other one is a YouTube video, which we'll link to, that the British Museum did on how to use an astrolabe. Because it's neat to have your own astrolabe, but it stinks if you don't know how to use it. And there's a cool little video on how to use it. And the curator shows you what an astrolabe looks like and and how to use it. So even if you don't make your own astrolabe, if you just want to see how one would be used, that's a nice little video, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well, how to use an astrolabe.
0: That's pretty cool because you have recommended the British Museum's videos before, and they're always very informative, and they're not too long
1: either. So that's it's a really good source. They're very good about making bite-sized videos, that's for sure. So Nina, you have a recommendation.
0: Yes, I do, and this is one of my favorite shows of all time is this very dense but super engaging science fiction show called the expanse which ran for six seasons several of them on sci-fi and the rest of them on amazon prime the expanse Is a all consuming and very philosophical show about what it means to exist in a universe that is fully colonized by both Earth and Mars and also the asteroid belt. And it's based on the novel series by James Corey which has its diehard fans from what i understand the first season kind of follows the first book and then from there it goes off but it's still really really good There, the fans of the books really like the series just as much if you're really looking for a show a hard science fiction show that does not pander and does not talk down to its audience and has the most interesting accent or what is it patois Dialogue. it's yeah, called it's
1: a kind of dialect, dialect yeah.
0: for its characters i really do recommend the expanse again you can watch all the seasons on amazon prime
1: agreed i, I love Bel- the expanse
0: <laughs> <Beltalora>.
1: yes <laughs> we need to learn how to speak the belter dialect yeah, absolutely all right nina as the stars are rising high in the sky it's time for us to call it a night I'm saying, although we're recording this in the afternoon, you know, that's not a good segue to say we're recording in the afternoon. Uh, So anything else you have for the good of the cause?
0: If you were to name a star, what would you name it?
1: Hmm. If I were to name a star, what would I name it? Besides after myself, I suppose. Yes. Given that awesome responsibility, uh, I would probably Mm -hmm. do something stupid just to mess with everyone, like name it Twinkle Twinkle or... uh, (laughs) Or worse, because the name, starry
0: McStarrison route.
1: Or name it Earth just to mess with people. If I had the power to make it Earth, especially if it was far yeah. away, mess with future generations of astronomers who couldn't figure out where the actual origin of human life was.
0: I, okay. That's um, weird, but okay. <laughs>
1: well, I, look, my, my idea is to have a practical joke that won't play out for centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: That you won't ever live to see the okay fine right fair
1: so do you do you have a special name for one
0: yes I'm going to name my star Hypatia Ah. after Hypatia the librarian of Alexandria which everyone should Google Hypatia of Alexandria all around badass librarian who stuck by that library just before it burned down.
1: Now that you've asked that question, it dawns on me. ah, Dawns on me. Clever, hey. It dawns on me that I I will not mention their actual names here, but my children, one of them I named for a word associated with stars. And the other one Mm -hmm. I named connected to a constellation. So Mm -hmm. apparently I'm not big about naming stars. I'm big about naming people after stars.
0: Well, there you go. See, that's how you should have answered. And (laughs) Instead of giving some obtuse answer. Well,
1: here, how about this for an answer? As I recall, and uh, listeners, I'm taking this off the top of my head, but as I recall, there is an ancient Sumerian goddess whose name is Nina, and her name is associated with the word for star, as I recall. now Really? You'll have to forgive me if that turns out to be wrong, but that is my recollection of something I looked at a long time ago. So you, in fact, might be a star.
0: Well damn
1: and also as a recall since i always knew it we're still not ending this episode with another thing so as you recall in the narnia chronicles there's a character named ramandu and mm-hmm. he is a star in, who's kind of living on earth in retirement and on vacation or something and they meet him and when i was yeah. in middle school there was some group that was claiming that they would name a star you know the star registry that you see we decided that that was a scam so we didn't do it but for a while my friends and i were saving up our money because we were going to buy a star and name it Ramandu after the character in the Narnia Chronicles. Because I was definitely a cool guy in middle school and not a total nerd.
0: <laughs> I, I want to end this really quick, just because you know this is like the podcast episode that never ends. Um, <laughs> you were thinking of the Sumerian goddess Inanna, which is um, goddess of love, sensuality, fertility, procreation, and also war. <laughs> if so. That's Uh, how uh, we end this podcast.
1: (laughs) West through hall, goddess of sensuality, love, fertility, and war. West through hall, nerd. (laughs) Michael, I am so sorry for this episode. (laughs) Pop Medieval was recorded in our Nerd Haven studio. Your hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. Our music is courtesy of Dr. John J. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash Or visit our Discord channel using the invite link in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. I don't know the answer to your question, Nina. <laughs> Are you leading me to something particular?
0: It's in uh, the show notes. <laughs>